Welcome back to Verse versus Verse. I'm Brad, and today Jace and Jordan will be debating whether the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the primeval history, present a literal, historical sequence of events. Now, for those who haven't heard from us before, I think it would be helpful to introduce ourselves. So, Jordan, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Jordan Fontenot. I work as a youth minister um, in the Houston area. I have been in youth ministry for, um, one could argue, for about a decade, I guess, more, probably a little less than a decade now I've been working in youth ministry. Um, and I grew up in a Church of Christ background. Uh, that's kind of the, the background that I've, I've uh, grown up with and have been rooted in. So I'm very familiar with a lot of the more traditional, uh, especially traditional Church of Christ um, background arguments, um, uh, theology, things like that. Perfect. Thank you. And Jace, please tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am finishing up my degree, my PhD degree in developmental genetics, and I also grew up in a Church of Christ background. Specifically, I grew up under a young earth creation view and a very literal read or a mostly literal reading of the Bible. I didn't, you know, I didn't think that the earth was flat. So a mostly literal reading of the Bible. Um, Part of the reason that I went into science in the first place is because I was interested in how that and how all the scientific knowledge and data were going to actually work with the Bible and work with the view that I grew up with. And it wasn't until ah, the last, definitely within the last decade, probably even more recently within the last five, six years, that I was able to determine that the view that I grew up with was not the most honest reading of scripture or the most honest treatment of science. And so that's led to a very big piece of my faith journey of figuring out where that deviation actually occurs, what the Bible is actually saying, what science actually says, and how to treat that honestly, both intellectually and as a follower of Christ. So that's a lot of my story there and a lot of the stuff I'll be presenting today. Thanks, Jace. Now, as you may have guessed, uh, Jordan will be presenting the affirmative case Uh, whereas Jace will be presenting the negative case today. That is that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 do not present a literal historical sequence of events. And before we begin, there's two reminders that we always like to give on this podcast. The first is that the two people debating today do not necessarily hold the views that they'll be arguing for today. Uh, Instead, what's going on here is there are countless brilliant, dedicated, faithful Christians around the world who have come to each of these two perspectives. And so Jace and Jordan have taken it upon themselves to faithfully represent one of these two views each to the best of their ability, whether or not they hold that stance. They may hold that stance, they may hold something close to it, or they might not. Uh, If you're really curious as to what they think about these things, I recommend uh, staying with us until the discussion section, which we'll do after the debate, we'll likely upload it as a separate podcast. Um, but if you want to hear their their more uh, fully genuine thoughts, then I recommend staying put for that. Uh, but in any case, uh, this leads to my second point, which is uh, for for those listening, if you're walking into this with a, a perspective that you already have, you know, you already align with one side more than the other here. My challenge for you is definitely listen to the whole debate. But in particular, please listen especially closely to the side you disagree with. And the reason for that is if you can get an understanding 
of where they're coming from, for the arguments that are leading them to the perspective they have, you'll be more able to love your neighbor as yourself. And also, just if you're trying to persuade people to come over to what you view to be the right side, that effort is going to be a lot more fruitful if you're ever if you're able to exercise some intellectual empathy and understand where the other side is coming from and treat them as people instead of just as enemies who think the wrong thing. Uh, we don't have a secular and a Christian perspective today. Rather, we have two Christian perspectives by two very faithful men. And it's also important to highlight, of course, that there is an entire spectrum of views today. We're highlighting just two points on that spectrum. Uh, they're not even on the far extreme ends. The extre most extreme ends would be somewhere around the world is flat on one end and the Bible is entirely made up on the other. Uh, we're more moderate. We're presenting more moderate views than that. But we are presenting just two points in that spectrum. So please be aware that there's plenty of nuance to be had between the two perspectives that are going to be argued today. Uh, we will be using the same format that we used in the last debate, which is 15 minutes for opening statements, followed by 10 minutes for rebuttal, 10 minutes for cross, and finally 10 minutes for closing. For each of these sections, Jace will be going first, presenting the negative case, and Jordan will be going second, presenting the affirmative case, with the exception being the last section, the closing. For that section, and only that section, the order will be flipped, and Jordan will go first. Um, <clears throat> if the uh, individuals go over the amount of time that they have, they will be permitted to keep speaking, but however much time they go over, double that will be deducted from their following section. So if they go one minute over on their opening, they will have two minutes less on their rebuttal. For the closing, when they run out of time, they will be able to finish the sentence that they're saying, but after that, they're done. Uh, that should cover mostly everything, so friendly reminder to myself and Jordan to mute her microphones. Uh, but Jace, uh, please present the negative case, that is that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 do not present a literal historical sequence of events. Whenever you're ready, begin speaking, and I will start your time. Good luck. <clears throat> thank you, Brad, for that introduction, and thank you, Jordan, for taking the time to talk about this with me. First, I want to say that I fully believe in the total inspiration and inerrancy of the entirety of the Bible. And when I say inerrancy, I mean that the entirety of the Bible is true. So starting from that basis, we have to clarify what it means for something to be true. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. First John chapter 2 says that truth is loving your brother and sister. Frequently throughout the scriptures, truth is used to refer to walking in righteousness and following God. Of course, there's also many times when truth is used to refer to concrete facts, but it's highly evident that truth is more than just facts. We see this very directly in Jesus' teaching of the parables, where Jesus takes fictional or poetic stories, which were frequently used by the rabbis of his time, and he puts a new spin on them to teach an important truth. To quote Reed Dent of CCT, all facts are truthful, but not all truths are factual. The topic we're addressing today, of course, is the historicity of Genesis 1-11, through 11, often referred to as the primeval history of the Bible. And this is where we establish who God is, who we are, and what it means to walk the path that God sets before us. Those are the truths that we're supposed to take away from the primeval history. However, historicity, at least in today's definition, is a question of facts, not a question of truth. What I'm submitting to you today is that a thorough exegesis of Genesis 1-11 through 11 indicates that this was not intended by God to convey facts. I'll demonstrate that the hyper-literalistic reading of the primeval history we use today is, in fact, a modern invention and was not held by the original audience, nor by Christ and his apostles. And lastly, I'll comment on the ways in which God's creation gives a sufficient testimony to dismiss the modern assumption that God was revealing facts rather than truth to his people. 
So the first, the first principle important to a good exegesis of scripture is to view it in its historical and cultural context. In the case of the first book of Moses, this was taught for, to the Hebrew people in the wilderness after God brought them out of slavery. So for the last 400 years, the Egyptian culture had been imposed on the Hebrew people, all but erasing their cultural identity. This is perhaps most evidence in the fact that the cries for help from the Hebrew people in Exodus 2 were not even directed towards God, but he heard them anyways. The best way for us to understand the culture that God's people have been subjected to is, of course, to examine the beliefs and religion of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. I suggest that in Genesis 1-11, through God takes the literary structures and themes common in their ancient Near Eastern culture, and he puts a spin on them to communicate important truths that he needs his people to understand. When we look at the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, we shouldn't assume that the Bible draws directly from these stories, nor should we assume the other way around. Instead, this reveals the ideas and themes which were common in their culture when the primeval history was drafted. The entirety of what we see in this section is something called the first firsts of a culture. The first man, the first creation, the first sin, the first murder, the first cataclysm, the first technology. Many Mesopotamian cultures had similar stories, which tells us that regardless of historicity, God chose to reveal these stories in ways which align with the literary methods of their time. We have recovered the writings of four Mesopotamian narratives regarding creation and a great flood. There's the Epic of Atrahasis from the 17th century BC, BC, the Eridu Genesis from the 16th century BC, the Epic of Gilgamesh from the 13th century BC, and a Greek version of the Ashur bilingual creation story from the 3rd century BC. To put it in perspective, the Genesis account is dated anywhere from the 12th century to 6th century BC by biblical scholars. Well, here's how non-biblical accounts go. Creation is formed from the cosmic battles with a chaos water dragon. Humans are created from the dirt to work the ground. Then there are ten generations of kings who lived for thousands to tens of thousands of years. And then there's a flood story. Sound familiar? Well, let's zoom in on the flood stories. We have a divine decision to send a punishing flood. One man is chosen to save himself, his family, and creatures by building a boat. That boat's design is given in the terms of the dimensions of a sacred temple. A flood comes and destroys everything else. Then the boat runs aground on a mountain. Birds are sent out to find habitable land. And the hero offers a sacrifice to the gods, and humanity is renewed on the land. Sound familiar? What's important, though, is the differences, not the similarities. You see, Genesis 1-11 through 11 is something called a polemic, which is a critical attack on an opposing opinion. Remember, God has just brought his people up from Egypt, and he needed to reframe their worldview. And these were the types of narratives that the surrounding culture shared. This is what the Hebrew people would be familiar with. So God takes these same storytelling methods, just like Jesus with the parables, and he reworks them to make a point about who God is, who man is, and what that relationship should look like. Culture said that creation came about through hard-fought battle. Genesis says that God created through the absolute authority of his word. Culture said that man was created to work for the lazy gods as slaves. Genesis says man is created to represent God to creation. Culture said that only the kings bore the image of God, but Genesis says that all men and women bear the image of God. Culture said that the gods sent the flood because they were angry at the noisy, stinky humans, but Genesis portrays a God who is grieved at the pervasive violence and moral corruption of man. Culture said that man was saved by one god rebelling against another, but Genesis says that there is only one god, and he protects the faithful through the destruction. Genesis 1-11 through 11 is a polemic. God pulls his people from slavery, he gives them a new way to live through the covenant on Sinai, and then he makes sure that they get a factual history textbook. No, God doesn't care about that. He cares about their theology, and he cares about reframing the, the way they see God, the way they see themselves, and the way they see the world, and God does this through stories that they're familiar with. Now, as Christians, we're claiming that Christ is our rabbi. That means that Jesus gets the ultimate say in how we interpret scripture. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout all the Gospels, where Jesus correctly demonstrates how to interpret scripture. So how does Jesus talk about Genesis 1-11? through 11? Does he speak of history and facts? 
Or does he speak of story and polemic? Mark 10.6, Jesus challenges the current cultural conversation of divorce by referencing the Garden of Eden. And Jesus doesn't say this to teach a history lesson. Rather, he demonstrates that divorce is a product of sin and not part of God's mission. In Luke 17, Jesus compares the coming of the Son of Man to the coming of the flood of Noah. Again, it's not a history lesson. It's focused on story. Jesus is taking the narratives that his disciples are familiar with and using them to illustrate a point. How did the, the apostles talk about the primeval history? In Acts 17, Paul uses Genesis exactly as it was originally used, as a polemic. To the people of the Areopagus, Paul contrasts the stone temples of golden idols to the living God whose temple is the entire cosmos. Paul doesn't give a history lesson. He uses the polemic as it was meant to be understood. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul compares the first man Adam to the last Adam, Jesus, to show that the covenant of Adam, which is broken by all and results in the death of all, with the covenant of Christ, which is available to all and gives life to all. If Paul were trying to convey Adam as the literal first man, then his comparison would make Christ the literal last man, which is obviously not the case. Regardless of whether Paul believed that to be historically true, we cannot take these scriptures to mean something which they are not originally intended to mean. Jesus has a habit of challenging religious views of the day, and in fact, we know that prior to Christ's death and prior to Christ's birth, Jewish philosophers such as Philo of Alexandria took the days of creation to be allegorical rather than literal. And at no point do we see Jesus nor his disciples either challenge nor affirm that view. And that's because the modern view of a historical Genesis 1-11 through was not the focus of their culture. They legitimately did not care. In fact, we see in historical writings of both Jews and Christians that Genesis 1-11 through is viewed allegorically from the time before Christ was born, literally up until the present day. Now, I'll skip to just before Darwin. And at this point, both Christian and secular geologists had already concluded that the Earth is ancient. Reverend James Douglas in 1785 says, Many well-informed persons have therefore been inclined to suppose that the Earth was created in six expanses of time instead of six days. Then in 1865, Reverend Richard Maine, a conservative Anglican preacher, said, Some school books still teach to the ignorant that the Earth is 6,000 years old. No well-educated person of the present day shares that delusion. Even in the Scopes trial of 1925, which sought to allow the teaching of creation alongside evolution in the classroom, the attorney for the creationist view, William Jennings Bryan, said of the Earth, it could be millions of years old. It could be 100 million years old. I don't know. The days of creation in Genesis symbolized epochs of geologic time. And in his letters, he said that he had no problem with macroevolution at large, but only took exception to humans also arriving from, arising from such a mechanism. So... If the popular view amongst Christians less than a century ago was that the earth was ancient, where does this hyper-literalist reading of Genesis come from that we see today? Well, it turns out that Ellen Gould White in the late 1800s co-founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She claimed to have received over 2,000 visions and dreams from God and is viewed by the Seventh-day Adventist Church as inspired to the same degree as biblical prophets. One of her prophecies described creation as having taken place in six literal, historical, consecutive, contiguous, 24-hour days. And in the early 1900s, Seventh-day Adventist apologist George McCready Price sought to prove her prophecy and invented flood geology as a, as a rejection of modern geology. This view was, however, ridiculed by both Christian and secular geologists and entirely dismissed. It wasn't until John Whitcomb wrote his doctoral dissertation for his theology degree, which mostly recycled Price's arguments, that this view began to gain traction. However, no one would publish his work as a, as a book because Whitcomb had no scientific credentials. So Whitcomb connected with Henry Morris, an engineering professor at Virginia Tech, who agreed to be listed as a co-author. But even then, the book couldn't find a single PhD-level geologist to review it due to its abysmally dishonest science. Speaking, of, speaking on the science book, the authors stated, the real issue is not the correctness of the interpretation of various details of the geo geological data, 
but simply what God has revealed in his word concerning these matters. These views of a young earth became popular not even on their own validity, but by piggybacking on a philosophical opposition to evolution, despite there being no true, no true connection between the ideas. To summarize, the culture of the authors and audience of Genesis 1-11, through as well as Jesus, were unconcerned with historicity in the way that we are today. The entire structure of the primeval history functions as a literary polemic, and at no point do we have a record of the text being handled hyperliterally until well after the time of Christ. The modern young earth creationist view stems directly from the visions of a supposed prophetess and stands in contrast to thousands of years of church history, despite what some people might claim. Now, all this still doesn't make Genesis 1-11 through non-historical, but it does mean that the text itself and its historical cultural context in no way demands a factual reading. So if the text itself is unconcerned with facts, how can we determine if the text conveys historical detail? Well, the first hint is to realize that Genesis 1 through 11 is far more similar to ancient Near Eastern mythology than it is to ancient Near Eastern history in style, structure, and content. The second method is to investigate the claims of the primeval history with science. Most of us are familiar with the heliocentric model of Copernicus and Galileo, and we know that the church strongly opposed it based on scriptural grounds. Joshua records the sun standing still, and 2 Kings records the sun moving backwards, and several passages in the Psalms and Job speak of the earth being unmoving. The church determined that the best reading of these passages meant that the earth stood still and the sun normally moved. Now imagine their theological horror when science disproved their reading of scripture. Well, John Calvin, in response to the church's backlash to a heliocentric model, said, Moses wrote in a popular style things which, without instruction, all ordinary persona endued with common sense are able to understand. But astronomers investigate with great labor whatever the sagacity of the human mind can comprehend. Nevertheless, this study is not to be reprobated, nor this science to be condemned, because some frantic persons are avant boldly to reject whatever is unknown to them. The reason I bring this up is because we already recognize that there are times where scientific understanding sh can and should overturn the way we read scripture. The Galileo debacle is perhaps the most recent, but it's by no means the only instance. In fact, we have dozens of passages in the Bible which indicate that the earth is a flat disk with a solid dome overhead, including numerous references in Genesis 1-11. through 11. And this isn't some wild theory. A flat earth model was the same model that all the surrounding nations and cultures held. And we have record of Jewish rabbis debating the thickness of this sky dome of Genesis 1. So consciously or not, we already understand that God spoke to his people in terms that they would understand. The earth isn't flat, the sun isn't revolving around us, but neither of these facts makes the Bible less true. Instead, it tells us that God was revealing truth into a world and culture of his people, but he chose not to correct their facts. Since God is the author of both the Bible and of nature, it would be totally irresponsible and altogether disrespectful of our creator to ignore the facts of creation in favor of an arbitrary and modern interpretation of scripture. At a certain point, we recognize that scientific evidence is sufficient to alter the way that we read scripture. In terms of a literal six-day creation, all of humanity descending from two people, and a global flood, we have more than enough evidence to overturn this modern hyper-literalist reading of scripture. I don't have time to go through every line of evidence, but I'll summarize it this way. Each of us has spiritual gifts. Some are able to study the scriptures, some are able to study God's creation. This is why God calls us to be in community. For those who study biology, the vast majority of Christians and all secular experts believe that the theory of evolution is true, and they also acknowledge that the evolving human population never dipped below about 6,000 individuals. For those who study geology, the vast majority of Christians and all secular experts believe the earth to be millions upon millions of years old. If the evidence truly pointed towards a young earth, then you would see at least some secular scholars adopt this view. 
but this never happens. The only experts in these fields who hold to a young earth creationist view are those who came in attempting to defend what they believed was a biblical worldview rather than seeking the truth in an unbiased manner. Even for those gifted to study scripture, my opponent told me that the majority of his college professors who study the Old Testament don't hold to a literal Genesis 1 through 11. Considering the mountains of evidence surrounding an old earth, surrounding evolution, surrounding the flood, and surrounding the original context of the scriptures, all from the testimony of our own Christian brothers and sisters, both modern and ancient, we're obligated to recognize that our own readings of scriptures are not inspired, and we can and do get things wrong. Reading Genesis 1-11 through 11 in the appropriate historical cultural context, we see that it's a literary, ancient, Near Eastern polemic, One minute not remaining. a historical narrative. Examining the claims of the primeval history scientifically, we know that a historical narrative reading is indefensible. As children of God, we are called to seek the truth, especially in regards to scripture. Thus, we're left with perhaps an uncomfortable truth. Genesis 1-11 through 11 is not a historical account, nor was it ever intended to be one. And there's absolutely no defense for continuing to walk in the darkness of ignorance when God has called us to walk in the light. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chase. Uh, you finished well within your time, so no, uh, no deduction for the next section. Uh, Jordan, you will be presenting the affirmative case, that is, that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 do present a literal historical sequence of events. So whenever you're ready, begin speaking. Jace, don't forget to mute your mic. And Jordan, I will start, start your time as soon as you begin. Good luck. Let's begin with an affirmation of Genesis as an historical account, since that seems to be uh, really what this is all about. It's not the premise arrived at lightly, nor is it held in isolation from the rich tradition of Judeo-Christian scholarship. The early church fathers, from Augustine to Origen, while debating the intricacies of its interpretation, never wavered contradiction that Genesis, or from the conviction rather that Genesis provided a real account of origins, grounded not just theological truths, but historical realities as well. Moreover, the narrative of Genesis itself assert this historical stance. It is a narrative with genealogies, specific ge geographical references, and detailed sequences of events. These are not the markers of a pure allegory or myth, but of an intention to convey actual events with theological significance. The text's use of chronological markers, and there was evening and there was morning, and genealogical records link it to the, con the concrete flow of time and human history. The functional ontology within Genesis does not preclude historical reality. Instead, it emphasizes the roles, purpose, and relationships within the created order, laying a foundation for the material reality that science investigates. This ontological perspective invites us to consider the functionality of the cosmos and humanity in a divinely instituted order, which is simultaneously historical and theological. In challenging Darwinistic interpretations of Genesis, we must first recognize the incongruity of applying a modern theist scientific theory to an ancient text. This is not just a methodological error, but a hermeneutical one. Hmm. The anachronistic projection of Darwinism onto the pages of Genesis disregards the cultural and historical milieu of its authors. The text was not intended as a scientific document, as my, uh, as my component would probably agree, but as a theological and historical narrative within the understanding of its time. The attempt to harmonize the book of Genesis with the theory of evolution often leads to a forced and unnatural reading, stripping the text of its inherent meaning and purpose. Such efforts overlook the clear narrative and genealogical elements that signal the author's intent to convey a sequential historical account of creation, humanity, and early civilization. To interpret Genesis as a myth or allegory simply because it speaks of events beyond our current scientific comprehension is to ignore the genre's distinction within the Bible itself. Genesis does not share the poetic symbolism of Psalms or the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation. Its placement at the very beginning of the biblical text underlies its foundational role in the scriptural understanding of the world's origins and order. 
It is therefore a hermeneutical necessity to respect the Genesis account by interpreting it through the lens of its own genre and historical context, not through the retrospective imposition of Darwin's theory, which arrived millennia later. The philosophical underpinnings of Darwinism often go unnoticed, yet they are critical to understanding its widespread acceptance and perceived conflict with the Genesis account. Darwinism at its core is embedded in naturalism, the belief that natural laws and forces can explain all phenomena in the universe. This philosophy assumes a priori that supernatural events or interventions do not occur. It is this assumption that creates an apparent discord with the miraculous events described in Genesis. The naturalistic worldview, however, is not a scientific conclusion, but a philosophical presupposition. Science, in its purest form, is agnostic on issues of metaphysics and ought to remain open to all empirical evidence, including that truth points beyond naturalistic explanations. When addressing the origins of life in the universe, it is crucial to distinguish between methodological naturalism, using natural causes to explain phenomena as a method of inquiry, and philosophical naturalism, which assert the natural causes are the only possible explanation. Genesis, in its ancient context, is not subjugated to these naturalistic limitations and freely discusses the supernatural. As such, any interpretation of Genesis must account for its supernatural claims without precluding them as a naturalistic sorry, not without precluding them through a naturalistic lens, as neo-Darwinism and naturalism does. This respect for the supernatural elements of Genesis is paramount in upholding its integrity and historical claims. The idea that Darwinian evolution, for example, should or even must be imposed upon the Genesis account if it is to be a viable account of origins is derived from the principle that Darwinian evolution is a foundational biological framework and is the undisputed consensus within the scientific community, and furthermore, that it is based on sound scientific methodology that has been derived, and this is important, without bias. These assumptions are fundamentally false, as I'll soon demonstrate. The scientific descent from Darwinism is a collection of thousands of times thousands of scientists across various fields who all profess that they are skeptical of the claims of Darwinism and encourage a critical view of Darwinism and for alternatives to be considered. Many of these scientists have published research and articles in their respective fields which dispute the claims of Darwinism and call into question the uncritical acceptance of species-to-species -species evolution as a foundation for a biological framework. While many would like to claim that Darwinian evolution is uncontested, this claim is both unsupported and unscientific. In regards to our interpretation of Genesis, theistic evolutionists would insist that evolution must negate a historical nature of the Genesis account on the basis that there is far too much scientific evidence in support of Darwinism, Yet the evidence which is claimed to be indisputable is very much in dispute, both from a lack of data and a fault in scientific methodology as a result of deeply rooted philosophical bias. Addressing the scientific shortcomings of Darwinism begins with a hermeneutical the hermeneutical foundation. Hermeneutics, the study of interpretation, is not just a literary concern, but a scientific one when it involves the interpretation of data and text that inform our scientific understanding. The narrative of Genesis, when read through the hermeneutical lens appropriate to its genre, does not align with Darwinian evolution. The literal days of creation, the genealogy, the specific acts of God informing the world and its inhabitants suggest an account that is at odds with the gradualism inher inherent in Darwinism. The immediate functionality and apparent age of created entities, as described in Genesis, are in direct contradiction to the evolutionary model that requires vast eons for the development of complexity. To read Darwinism into Genesis requires, a hermeneutical, requires hermeneutical gymnastics that distort the plain meaning of the text and undermine its historical and theological coherence. This is not a question of the text's compatibility with science, but rather the imposition of a particular scientific model onto a text from a vastly different intellectual context. In the realm of biology, Darwinian evolution is predicated on the gradual modification of species through natural selection acting on random mutations. 
However, significant challenges to this come from the fossil record and molecular biology. The fossil record, rather than displaying a gradualistic pattern of slow incremental change, often shows a pattern of sudden appearances of stasis, major groups of organisms that appear abrupt abruptly, with no clear ancestral forms as seen in the Cambrian explosion. At the molecular level, the complexity of cellular machinery and the information-rich structures of DNA pose significant hurdles for the undirected processes of evolution. The genetic code's origin, the intricate molecular machines within the cell, and the vast information content required for life processes have not been adequately explained by naturalistic mechanisms. These molecular features point to an intelligent design that is not accounted for in the Darwinian framework. Moreover, observed, uh, observed instances of rapid adaptation and the phenomenon of genetic entropy, the de degeneration of the genome over time, challenge the idea that natural selection leads to increasing complexity and improvement. Instead, they suggest limits to the variation and natural selection that natural selection can produce, which aligns with the concept of created kinds with inherent potential for variation as indicated in Genesis. The biological evidence raised, this biological evidence raises substantial questions about the capacity for Darwinian mechanisms to account for the origin and diversity of life. Physics, particularly quantum, quantum mechanics and thermodynamics introduces principles that are also problematic for the undirected processes foundational to naturalism. The second law of thermodynamics, for instance, which states that the total entropy of a closed system can never decrease over time, suggests that natural systems should tend towards disorder, not the increased complexity required by Darwinism. This entropy increase appears at odds with a progressive order of complexity that is claimed to arise through evolutionary processes. Quantum mechanics further challenges this deterministic view of the universe that undergirds naturalistic evolution. It introduces elements of indeterminacy and probability at fundamental levels of physical reality, which cannot be reconciled easily with predictable and gradual pattern of change posited by Darwinian evolution. This indeterminacy at the quantum level brings into question the sufficiency of natural selection as a deterministic process for driving the development of life. Moreover, the anthropic principle supported by the findings of physics suggests that the physical constants of the universe are finely tuned for the existence of life. This fine tuning is not readily explained by naturalism, which uh, does not account for the physical constants, and instead posits a universe with conditions improbably suited for life unless guided by an intelligent design. Thus, the testimony of physics adds a further layer of doubt to naturalism and to the Darwinian model, suggesting a universe with characteristics that are better explained by a design rather than undirected natural processes. And our journey through the evidence has led us to an important cultural and philosophical consideration. The prevailing scientific ideology has been deeply influenced by naturalism, the view that nature is all there is and that all phenomena can be explained by natural causes without invoking the supernatural. However, this philosophical stance often goes unquestioned, assumed to be the default position of science. The uncritical acceptance of naturalism has profound implications for how scientific data are interpreted. When naturalistic assumptions are a priori in integrated into scientific inquiry, they limit the conclusions to those that exclude supernatural agency by definition. This can lead to a circular reasoning where the interpretation of data is considered to fit within a naturalistic framework, regardless of whether the data itself points beyond such confines. In the context of our debate, the naturalistic bias can cause the evidence from hermeneutics, biology, and physics to be interpreted in such a way that the only acceptable explanations are those that adhere to a naturalistic narrative. It excludes other explanatory frameworks, such as the historical account of Genesis, not on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of a philosophical commitment to naturalism. This philosophical predisposition has a substantial bearing on the discourse of origins that has the and has the effect of marginalizing viewpoints that incorporate the supernatural, such as young earth creationism, 
Recognizing this, this bias is crucial for an open and fair discussion on the origins of life in the universe. Naturalism, by its very nature, posits a cosmos devoid of any divine footprints, thereby leading to a worldview that fundamentally conflicts with the theistic perspectives presented in Genesis, where an omnipotent God is the primary cause of creation. In this view, the universe and all its complexities are the result of random processes and unguided events, a stance that is inherently antithetical to the message and design and purpose conveyed in the biblical text. The acceptance of naturalism has led to a reinterpretation of the natural world in purely mechanistic terms often dismissing the possibility of divine action or guidance in the development of the universe and life within it. This perspective directly challenges the very essence of, theist, of a theistic worldview which sees purpose, meaning, and direction as central to the understanding of the cosmos. The insufficiency of naturalism becomes particularly evident when we confront questions of ultimate origins, consciousness, and the moral dimensions of human existence, questions that naturalism struggles to answer satisfactorily but are addressed within the theistic framework of Genesis. It is crucial, therefore, to recognize how a naturalist interpretation of, of the world not only conflicts with the theistic narrative, but also limits our inquiry into the true nature of reality, potentially closing off avenues of understanding that include divine intentionality and purpose. An often overlooked aspect of the discourse of origins is, is the circular reasoning that underlies both neo-Darwinism and naturalism. Neo-Darwinism, with its foundation in naturalistic philosophy, presupposes that all phenomena, including the origin of life and species diversification, must have natural explanations. This presupposition leads to a self-affirming cycle where naturalistic interpretations are favored, and in turn, these interpretations are cited as evidence for naturalism itself. This approach encounters a critical philosophical flaw, particularly evident in the God of the Gaps argument. This argument dismisses supernatural explanations on the basis that a natural explanation is available or conceivable. However, this stance places human understanding and intellect as the arbiters of reality, assuming that it can some that if something can be explained naturally, it must have occurred naturally. This perspective not only makes significant logical leaps, but is essentially an unscientific approach. It conflates the ability to explain with the nature of actual causation, ignoring the possibility that the natural world might, might encompass events instigated by supernatural agency. Furthermore, foundational naturalistic or neo-Darwinian perspective forces an interpretive lens on scientific observations, constraining them to fit within a naturalistic framework. This framework would compel us to interpret any potential supernatural phenomena as natural occurrences. Consequently, these, these naturalistic interpretations are then leaned on as quote-unquote evidence of naturalism and neo-Darwinism, reinforcing the original presupposition. One minute remaining. In contrast, a truly open scientific inquiry should allow for the possibility of supernatural intervention, especially in matters concerning origins where empirical data reach their limits. Dismissing the supernatural a priori not only narrows our understanding, but also risks missing the reality of a universe that may well be undergirded by divine intentionality and purpose. Essentially, while engaging with science, we must be wary of a philosophical bias that precludes certain explanations and interpretations. By embracing a broader perspective that allows for both natural and supernatural causality, we can approach the Genesis account and indeed the whole of scientific inquiry with the openness necessary to, deter the true to determine the true nature of our origins and the universe. Finally, we turn to the question of hermeneutics. How we interpret the ancient and sacred texts of scripture in light of modern scientific and philosophical developments. It is a pivotal concern that the cultural dominance of naturalism does not overshadow the exegetical process, leading us to retrofit the Bible to fit contemporary scientific paradigms. Time. Genesis, particularly chapters 1 through 11, has been the subject of much debate. 
Some propose these chapters should be read allegorically or mythopoetically, influenced heavily by the presupposition that modern science has disproven a literal interpretation. However, a careful exegesis, mindful of the literary and historical context, suggests that these chapters were intended by the original authors to be taken as a historical account, conveying theological truths through historical narrative. The danger of allowing modern philosophy, particularly naturalism, to skew our reading of scripture is that we may miss the intended message and theology that these texts convey by imposing a naturalistic framework onto the biblical narrative. We potentially distort the very nature of the biblical God as creator, reducing him to an abstract principle rather than the active personal deity who interacts with his creation. In conclusion, while we should engage with and understand contemporary science, we must also preserve the integrity of the biblical text. This means approaching Genesis and indeed all of scripture with a hermeneutic that respects its genre, historical context, and authorial intent, allowing scripture to speak on its own terms rather than through the lens of a naturalistic worldview. Only then can we hope to capture the true essence of its message and the reality of a world created by a purposeful, personal God. Thanks very much, Jordan. Uh, Jordan, you were over just one minute and 15 seconds, so you will have two and a half minutes uh, uh, subtracted from your rebuttal. Um, great job on both of your arguments. I think you've both prepared very well, and I think that's shown through in the opening statements. Uh, Jace, you will have 10 minutes for your rebuttal to respond to Jordan's statements. Uh, I'll start your time as soon as you begin speaking. Uh, as a friendly reminder, again, remember to mute your mics. Good luck, Jace. Okay, so Jordan, thank you for that. Um, that was very well prepared and very well put together. I especially agree with a lot of your points on naturalism. Naturalism as a philosophy, the idea that science is all there is and therefore science can explain everything and anything science can't explain can't exist is absolutely a philosophical argument and not a scientific argument. If you ever come to the idea of naturalism based on the evidence of science, you are mishandling science. Let me be very clear. If you come to the, uh, to the idea of naturalism based on science, you are mishandling science. Science by its nature can only test physical realities. Therefore, any claims you make about spiritual or supernatural realities based on physical scientific evidence is not a scientific claim and you are handling it incorrectly. So be very careful whenever you're handling things this way. I think Jordan and I are in full agreement on that. Uh, so moving towards the actual arguments that were uh, put forth, the first idea is that we need to be able to handle the Bible in the plain meaning of the text. And the plain meaning of the text unfortunately means one thing to you and another thing to me and another thing to John Calvin, right? Like we all had different ideas of what the plain meaning of the text is. The flat earth is a plain meaning of the text. A geocentric model is the plain meaning of the text. And not only are those the plain meaning of the text, those are also the intended meanings of those texts because that's what the authors viewed the world as. They viewed the world as a flat disk with a solid rocky sky dome overhead. And they viewed the universe as the earth being at the center with the celestial heavenly bodies moving around them. That's what they believed. That's what their cultures around them believed. So we know for a fact that whenever the authors wrote those things, that's what the authors believed. And so while, yes, we need to be very careful to, in, to work with the intended meaning of the authors, we also have to realize that God chose to reveal things to these authors through their lens and their culture and their understanding. And he wasn't speaking beyond their scientific knowledge. So it shouldn't surprise us whenever science today comes in and says, hey, the scientific knowledge 4,000 years ago wasn't quite right. Like, we don't think that we think with our heart and our kidneys. We think we think with our brain. Um, leaning towards the idea of all of the forefathers agreeing with a literal interpretation of Genesis, my opponent mentioned uh, Origen and Augustine. Well, 
I don't I don't fully agree with that. You see, I mentioned Philo of Alexandria, and he stated that creation actually took place all at once, and then the six days were given as descriptors. Um, when we look at Augustine, he says. When we reflect upon the first establishment of creatures and the works of God from which he rested on the seventh day, we should not think either of those days as being like the ones governed by the sun, nor that working is as resembled the way God now works in time. But we should reflect rather upon the work from which times began, the work making all things at once, simultaneously. It follows, therefore, that he who created all things together simultaneously created these six days, or seven, or rather the one day six or seven times repeated. Why then was there any need for six distinct days to be set forth in the narrative one after another? The reason is that those who cannot understand the meaning of the text, he created all things together, cannot arrive at the meaning of scripture unless the narrative proceeds solely step by step. So Augustine believed that the Genesis account was recorded sequentially in days for the benefit of the audience, but it didn't really happen that way. An alternate viewpoint, Origen, says of Genesis 1 through 3, I do not suppose that anyone doubts that these things figuratively indicate certain mysteries, the history having taken place in appearance and not literally. So the two people that Jordan said represented a young, a literalistic interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11 clearly didn't take this to be very literal. Um, now, we had this idea of genealogies being some solid evidence for these being historical piece because that was supposed to set forth the genre here. But let's look at the genealogy for a moment. We have 10 generations of people in the line of Adam to Noah, each with ages that we consider to be well above the human life expectancy. Now, there's several lines of evidence which we need to consider. First, compare this to the Sumerian king list. In their list, all the kings prior to the flood of Gilgamesh reigned anywhere from 18,000 years to 43,000 years. Post-flood, the recorded reigns were more than 20 generations, with reigns ranging from 140 years to 1,500 years. Now, if we want to use these numbers as evidence for long human lives, we have to recognize that this accounts for 208,800 years prior to the flood and 18,724 years before we ever even get to the ages even remotely reasonable for humans, much less the length of reigns. This gives us the length of human dynasties, which is more than twice as far back as scientists believe humans ever even exited Africa, nearly eight times as far back as young Earth creation places Adam and Eve through a literalistic interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11. So we're forced, regardless of our view of Genesis, to recognize that these cultures would, would assign exaggerated ages to people of importance within history. The culture assigned this to honor the kings, but Genesis, in true polemic fashion, assigns the same honor to all people. Second, we know from the numbers themselves that this isn't a report of true historical values. If you notice, every number that's listed is a multiple of five with the optional addition of the number seven. This is significant because whereas we write rounded numbers, usually to the nearest ten or hundred, the Sumerian people used a sexagesimal numerical system, meaning that multiples of five years would be written as entirely rounded numbers in their numerical system. And the addition of the number seven is, of course, a symbolic number for completion or perfection, as seen in the temple liturgies of both the Bible and of surrounding cultures. Of those who get an additional seven, we have Seth, Jared, and Lamech. Methuselah, the man who walked with God and was taken into heaven, gets a double dose of the seventh treatment, both before his son's birth and after. Now, the odds of any number over 20 ending as in a 0, 2, 5, 7, or 9, as we see in Genesis 5, is 50%. Biological numbers are expected to follow a random distribution. The odds of any number matching the observed criteria here is going to be 50%, and the odds of 10 out of 10 numbers matching the observed criteria is 1 in 1,024. Genesis 5 has 28 unique biological numbers, and all 28 conform to the expected formula. The odds of this occurring from a true biological system is a staggering 1 in 268,435,456. Those are the minimum odds that this is a list of factual biologic numbers.
Third, these numbers aren't even consistently recorded between the Septuagint, the Masoretic Text, and the Sumerian Pentateuch. In the Sumerian Pentateuch, Jared, Methuselah, and Lamech all died the year of the Flood. The Masoretic Text shifts the ages before fatherhood of Methuselah and Lamech by 120 and 100 years each, respectively, to prevent them from encountering the Flood, and the Septuagint left Methuselah surviving the Flood by 14 years. It's likely that the redactors who put together the texts that we have today saw the same problem in the original, um, the te the, a text that we likely don't have, where there were people surviving the flood, so centuries later, they changed the numbers to add continuity. Now, if these numbers were truly historical records, then we would have never had these problems. Um, if we look at Genesis 1 through 11 in, uh, in its style and its uh, genre, the first thing that we'll notice when examining this section for literary style is the presence of chiasms. A chiasm is a literary structure used frequently in Hebrew and other ancient Near Eastern texts, which uses a mirrored structure to draw attention to a certain thing in the middle. So A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, or A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. This is very normal in ancient Near Eastern texts. And not only is Genesis 1 through 11 in its entirety a chiasm, but each story within Genesis 1 through 11 is a chiasm. And if you look further on in Genesis, you start to lose a lot of this. So Genesis 1 through 11, even in literary style, is a distinct section from the remainder of Genesis, which is why we know it should be treated separately from the rest of Genesis. I'm going to skip just for the remaining for the purpose of time to the idea of evolution. Um, so let's you. My opponent said that evolution was a fairly weak theory. Um, one of the things that we should note, though, is that theories are able to either test and predict things. So if something is an actual functional theory, it should be able to predict things. Let's look at cetaceans. So that would be like whales and dolphins. You see, Darwin predicted from his observations that even whales and dolphins must have descended from terrestrial and mammals. He was essentially laughed out of the room to the point where he mostly redacted this entire idea from the second edition of his book, The Origin of Species. But nonetheless, this evolutionary theory predicted the existence of transitional species in the fossil record. Darwin's predictions back from the 1850s wouldn't be fulfilled until the 1980s when in present-day India and Pakistan, a number of terrestrial tetrapod fossils were discovered with similarities to modern-day fossilized cetaceans. In fact, there were several species discovered with range, which ranged from having the thickened skull covering the middle ear to evidence of semi-aquatic and fully aquatic tetrapods, evidenced by thick, heavy bones and high limbs, which were unable to support the body of the animal on land. There were even species found which had their nostrils shifted up the skull in the direction of the blowholes that are so characteristic of whales. You see, embryology as well supports this. Whales develop two front-facing nostrils, which migrate to the back of the skull during embryonic development and fuse. And in fact, cetaceans all develop both forelimbs and hindlimbs during development, the latter of which regress back into the body wall prior One to minute. birth. So for some reason, God saw it fit to make whales develop the way just as predicted by evolutionary theory. And I ask, if not for evolution, why would God make them develop this way? It's of no benefit to the modern whales and dolphins, whether it follows the laws of nature that were authored by God himself in evolution. Furthermore, when we look at interspecies relatedness by genome sequence and identity, we'll notice that something called pseudogenes, with genes which are broken and non-functional. What we find is using the thousand plus genes related to smell as an example, is that dogs and wolves have a thousand genes for smell. We as humans only have a subset of these genes. And many of our pseudogene mutations happen at the exact same place and in the exact same way as other primates. So if I have a gene that's broken in my body and it doesn't even produce a protein, doesn't function, it's going to look really similar to the way a dog smell gene looks. And in fact, it's going to be located in the exact same spot, and that's going to be shared by other primates. And then we see the same pattern between like orcas and hippos and other related mammals, both aquatic and um, terrestrial. I'll stop for now because of time. So thank you. Excellent. You finished right on time. Uh, thank you very much, Jace. Jordan, you will have seven and a half minutes for your rebuttal. 
So whenever you're ready, please present your counterarguments to the points Jace made, especially in his opening statement. And uh, Jace, as a friendly reminder, remember to mute your mic, me as well. Uh, Jordan, whenever you begin speaking, I'll start your time. Good luck. All right, well, I I think that Jace has done an excellent job of presenting his point. Uh, I think that he has really hit the nail on the head that this argument can move outside of just the realm of talking about biology and evolution. We're talking about the hermeneutics of uh, the Genesis record. I do think that several of the points that he's made uh, are very solid points. There's a lot of uh, exegetical arguments to be made about the historicity of Genesis that point to the cultures that are outside of the Genesis account, uh, that the context in which it was received is something that we have to consider in exegesis, and that's something that Jace has done an excellent job of considering. But I do think that there is a certain cart before the horse situation that happens when we start to study exegesis, in which we apply the culture in which the context was given uh, of certain scriptures and use that to apply a meaning or as- assume that that for the original transmission of the message. Um, if we assume that all of these ancient Sumerian cultures have these similar stories, and they all seem to be on roughly the same page as to these stories of origins, then why is it so radical that the Judeo-Christian belief would not only be similar to that, but would be very unique in that it added certain elements that are not like other Sumerian cultures? Furthermore, that idea that these Sumerian cultures all have the same ideas of the same origin stories points to an idea and points to the theory that they experienced something similar and that what they believed was based on a very similar, very common and connected ideology. What better way to explain it than to say that God had originally intended for things to be made a certain way that the record of how he developed the world and the record of what occurred was passed down generation to generation that people would understand it. And it may go through a bit of telephone, don't get me wrong, but that those oral traditions, which were passed down through Sumerian cultures before they were written as well, were passed down through the Judeo-Christian, the Hebrew culture as well. Um, Moving on past that for just a moment, I think that same concept applies of putting a cart before the horse, not just in talking about the hermeneutical approach, but when talking about the scientific approach as well. When we were talking about evidences, again, I pointed out before that if you put naturalism first and you hear me out, because I think my opponent agrees that naturalism is not the conclusion that we would arrive at as far as uh, philosophical naturalism. But when we apply naturalism in a methodological sense, uh, methodological naturalism is something that we, in many ways, have to apply to empirical evidence, but it has its limitations as well. In this case, if we assume a fully natural explanation of something and we look at the data, then when we interpret the data, we will interpret in the way that best fits a natural explanation. However, that cannot exclude a supernatural explanation for things. For example, if we look at the data and it is, and if, if it is to fit a model, we have to create a model that communicates and explains the data naturally. So that when we go back to that natural data, we have a model that can explain, a, can give a natural explanation for what has occurred. So these predictive aspects of evolution, which I believe by and large, the theory of evolution is correct. Its conclusions, on the other hand, that are theoretical, uh, 
stretch a bit too far because they adhere to this fallacy, this philosophical fallacy, that if we create something that is supposed to give a natural explanation or is based around maybe perhaps providing too natural an explanation or must strictly adhere to a natural explanation and dismiss the supernatural agency based on that premise, we have created a fault in science that assumes that there cannot be natural, there cannot be anything supernatural. Uh, naturalism and a natural methodological naturalism even cannot dismiss the supernatural. And yet oftentimes it is used to do so. This is still the case as far as these naturalistic methods that are used and applied to dismiss the supernatural elements of the creation account in Genesis. And so for us to say that we must wholly reject the Genesis account as historical based on the fact that it does not adhere to current scientific paradigms, even if they are well-suited and well-documented and the models we have fit them well, that is not scientifically or philosophically sound. Even if we were to look back at the data from methodological naturalism, we would never be able to see supernatural events occur by a natural methodology. We could not interpret anything through naturalism as supernatural. That is exactly the point of naturalism and methodological naturalism. And because of that, if anything were ever to be perceived, it would never, it would never be perceived as supernatural. And if it ever was perceived, anything supernatural was perceived, it would be perceived as natural. And so for us to say that the supernatural events of Genesis 1 never occurred because our interpretation of the data fits a methodological naturalism or even a philosophical naturalism, uh, that would be a fallacy in and of itself. And so I think what my opponent is pointing out, there are some great points uh, to be made about the beauty of the evolutionary model and the fact that it has an incredible uh, and amazing predictive capacity. But many of the aspects past that are theoretical and are basically a backwards explanation to fit what we've already seen into a model that gives a naturalistic explanation. That's my time. Thanks very much, Jordan. Uh, now, to to anyone listening, uh, of course, all parts of a debate are valuable, but I'd like to congratulate you at having arrived at the best part of the debate, which is cross-examination. Uh, at least in my opinion, this is the most fun part of the debate because we get to see these two talk with one another and go back and forth and really flesh out these ideas in real time. You're such uh, a lawyer. I am, yes. and I'm also I just just a glutton for for debate. This to me feels like the the truest, purest part of it. Uh, in any case, I'm ready to have fun listening to it. Jace, you are going to be questioning Jordan first, so yes. you have ten minutes for uh, for your cross examination. Both of you actually do. Uh, Jace, whenever you're ready, I'll start your time. Whenever you begin speaking, and Jordan, no need to beat your mic because you're going to be talking too. Best of luck. Jeez, do you need to catch your breath for a second, Jordan? This isn't Just a question a little for bit. Yeah. No, okay, here, yeah. Stay, take a few seconds to catch your breath. Yeah. <laughs> I started your time when you said, do you need to catch your breath? I was like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I, re I reset it. <laughs> oh, man. Ah, oh, this is exhausting. Y'all are doing great. Need to go. Just let me know. I'm ready. Right. Fire away. Mute my mic. All right. Fire away. Fire away. All right, One moment. I, I just like to say that I'm putting that in the final recording. Good luck. Oh, thank you. So, Jordan, Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, gives this weird aside to us about rivers. Would you consider this section to be literal or figurative? I believe it could be literal. 
Okay, um, so this represents a literal geographic area. Now, are you familiar with the rabbinic midrash teachings, just in general, not specific ones, but just in general of what they are? Yes, I'm familiar with. I'm, okay. I'm familiar with what they are. So, for the audience that might not know, the midrash is the Jewish rabbinical oral tradition, which teaches lessons through stories, and these stories almost always add new details to the stories of Torah, such as the story of Abraham destroying his father's idols and being sentenced to death by Nimrod, or such as the movie Noah from 2014, which was accurate to the midrash <laughs> rather than to the script. I know, but it was accurate know, to the midrash. And I know it was. And we heavily critiqued it for not being scripturally accurate because these stories were designed to teach truth, but they show us that the ancient Hebrew community had much less concern for fact. Now, when we look at the midrash surrounding these four rivers, these four rivers aren't literal. They're representative of the four sons of Noah, the Tigris and Euphrates being the two blessed sons of Noah, the Gihon, the wandering through the land of Cush, being the cursed son of Noah, and the Pishon, which is likely the dried up Wadi Basin, is the son that Noah was supposed to have before Ham castrated him. Now, would you say that this story is taking more of a literal or figurative view of Genesis? I would say that the story you've presented is taking a more figurative view of Genesis. Yeah, now, and so this was given by the rabbis, which are experts in the scripture. And would you agree that the rabbis that originally gave this are much closer both in time and culture to the writing of Genesis? That is true. Okay. So I'm going to leave this here, um, and I'm going to move on to the idea of rocks. Would you posit that dinosaurs were materially created on the sixth day, along with the other terrestrial animals and humans? Repeat that question, sorry. Were dinosaurs created on the sixth day in the creation story? According to the creation story, yes. I'm going to put that yes in air quotes, but yes. Okay, uh, then this may, answer, this may help us answer this next question. Since we know that dinosaurs aren't running around today, when do you think dinosaurs died? Uh, according to the young Earth creationist view, I would say that they died during the flood. When do, you, when do you think they died, though? Do you think they died during the Flood? I don't think they all exclusively died during the Flood. But mostly. But mostly, yes. Okay, so now, Genesis chapter 6, verse 19, God said, Of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. Were the dinosaurs not included in that? No, I believe, well, okay, let's back that up, because I think there is an explanation for this, and I think that if you were to look at that, you wouldn't say, well, um, we had... Uh, wolves, and we had coyotes. We had uh, no, you could definitely have microevolution after that. No problem with that. Exactly, and I think that that you could make the argument that dinosaurs did make it onto the ark. Um, so some form of dinosaurs made it onto the ark, and that's why okay. I say that I don't think that they were completely but, wiped know, you out. You probably don't have like the Triceratops else. and the T Rex and the Brachiosaurus on there. Um, you may not. I mean, regardless, you could, you could uh, make the argument, I suppose, but uh, yeah, unlikely. But even yeah. so, if a global flood really destroyed every living thing, we should see that reflected in the fossil record, correct? Yes. Now, instead, we see a clear line of faunal succession in the geologic column. Why is it that if these animals were all destroyed at once, we never see dinosaur fossils in the same layer as mammalian fossils? I don't know that I agree that that is absolutely always true. But assuming that it is, we'll just assume that it is. It, yeah. I do think that there is a certain degree to which the way we view these layers is also falsified as a matter of fact if you take the younger creationist view of the noah of the flood account um that is usually the explanation given for these layers in the geological record and that would explain why you never see those things in the same level because a lot of things were sorted in different ways uh heavier things may have ended up below lighter things and that's just the typical nature of how you sort things when you shake up a bottle of any kind of fluid uh, and the same tr thing would be true of any kind of creature. Yeah, uh, 
yeah, I think that we could really have some, like, if, if there was sedimentary layers occurring all at once in a very catastrophic flood, theoretically, you could have heavier things sink to the bottom, lighter things come to the top. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the problem being that the lowest levels of the geologic column don't have the heaviest things. In fact, they have, like, spores and single-cell organisms. Uh, during all of, during all of the level layers, we have fossil records of animals building homes. We have, we have tracks. We have eggshells. Things that shouldn't be there if everything came from a catastrophic flood. Um, but just to simplify, would you say that like the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic layers were deposited during the flood? I'd say they could have been. Okay. And given how quickly the deposition would have had to happen, why do why would you think that we see these animal burrows and animal tracks and even raindrops in these middle layers? Shouldn't a global flood have destroyed such fragile evidence? Absolutely not. No, the really the framework that is given for the Noah's flood is that water covered the earth, but not not just water because water carries lots of things. It covers it it brings the earth with it. And so while there may have been tracks, those tracks would have had to have been in order for fossilization to have occurred, those tracks and everything around them would have had to have had a very rapid change in the physicality and the the sediment that was around them. In other words, something else had to fill in around them very quickly in order for them to be preserved that well. And so really, I would say that's more evidence to a catastrophic event, a catastrophic flood than it is against. Okay. I'm not I'm not an expert on geology in particular, but I know that that's not the conclusion that the majority of geologists have gone come to. But let's just say that you're right. Let's say that these sedimentary rocks, the uh, rock layers, were somehow all laid down with a consistent fossil record of distinct faunal succession across the globe. How is it then? How is it then that in Mesopotamia, which you affirmed as the geographic description of the Garden of Eden, that there are six miles of fossil bearing record, fossil bearing layers underneath it, including all the layers which you say were the result of the global flood, which would have occurred after the Garden of Eden? I think that there's a twofold explanation to that. One aspect is that perhaps even those layers could have been the result of the flood. You could say that. That's not going to be my argument, though. My argument is that we believe in this idea of sedimentary layers because of what we currently observe in geology. And before the flood occurred, thousands of years have passed. And by that time, many layers could have formed, by, be it much, much faster than maybe we would have, uh, may, maybe that we would in the current system and, the, and as the current paradigm would indicate. But it's still possible that those layers could have been laid down during that time frame. Okay, and those layers laid down during that time frame would reflect the exact faunal succession that we see all over the rest of the globe? Not necessarily. But they uh, do. I mean, they could. Consistently. They absolutely yes. do. That's not, a, they, that's not a they could. They absolutely consistently do. There's okay. no exception. Okay. I'm good with that. I, okay. I, I have no problem with that. Um, also, I, I would... The thousands of years is interesting, considering according to the literal reading of Genesis, we have 1,656 years between creation and the flood. Okay. But yeah, so not quite thousands. Of years. Not quite thousands, but um, you get my drift. Sixteen hundred yeah. years is a long time. Okay, so you're thinking that things could have happened much faster. Way faster, that. yes. Okay, would that include like um, radiometric decomposition? Oh man, you want to talk about radiometry? Okay, um, I think that it definitely could have impacted uh, radiometry, and I think again, there's a lot of assumptions made about radiometry that. Did you explain that? Radiometry is based on 
really, and it's, it's very informed, I'll say very informed assumptions. Um, for example, most of radiometry is based on the half-life of isotopes, and uh -huh. that's calculated using quite a bit of math, but it's also calculated based on the principle that the conditions of these isotopes have been in closed systems and have not been impacted by any other factors that might, and given those factors would have to be extreme, any other factors that might contribute to the decay rate, or you'd have to assume too that the isotopes in question are the ones that you started with and not different isotopes that are similar. Um, so, like, for example, if I look at the carbon-14 levels in the very center of a tree, it should be older than the carbon-14 levels in the outside ring of a tree. Would you agree? Um, yes. So, like, if I had a tree that had... If I have a tree that has 100 rings, or let's say 200 rings, then the carbon on the very center should be should show a radiometric isotope dating of carbon-14, about 200 years difference than the outside ring, roughly. I'm not real sure on... How well it works on trees, but sure, let's assume it, it that's works. True. It works great on yeah. trees, okay. especially I, I for figured, the trees, but... that, especially for the trees that we have that have fourteen thousand rings that are shown to be fourteen thousand years old, which is much older than the Earth by Young Earth Creation view. Okay, I, I is is that a question or is that an no, assertion? I, I would I would like <laughs> to hear your thoughts on it. Okay, uh, my thoughts on it are that again we go back to assumptions. One of the assumptions is that uh, the these half lives are not in any way changed. They're not in any way altered. Uh, and there's no external forces that uh, would radically alter their the half-life. Half-lives aren't this regularly scheduled thing where the, you know, isotopes look at their watch and say, oh, time to, you know, decay. Uh, this is something time. that occurs rather, uh, th this is something that occurs rather randomly. Um, it's just that there is a, there has been a predictable function to them. And so because of that, they're usually very predictable and very uh, accurate. So you have to assume that no other factors have impacted that radio radiocarbon dating and that there was no other, that, that those half-lives weren't affected by any external forces in the, I guess, earlier years, thousands of years earlier, um, that might have impacted the acceleration or deceleration of that radioactive decay, if that makes sense. So we can come back to this later in the discussion or something. Uh, I think my time is up. Jordan, thank you for uh, your answers for all this. That was great. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you both very much. Uh, Jace, that was over by 45 seconds. Um, you did hear me say time, right? I just want to make yes, sure. Yes, and I didn't say anything okay. after you said time. Okay, excellent. No, um, I just answered the question. He didn't. Yeah, I figured we would let him finish answering yeah. rather than me cutting him off there. <laughs> all right. Thanks very much. Uh, you both did great. Uh, because Jordan, uh, because Jace's last question was before the end of his time and the period that went over time was just Jordan answering that question, uh, we won't be deducting that time from Jace's closing. So he will have his full 10 minutes. Uh, but Jordan, it is now your turn to ask Jace some questions. I'll start your 10 minutes as soon as you begin speaking. Good luck. All right. Well, Jace, um, just a few questions, and I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, I'm going to kind of hit all of these different subjects that we've discussed tonight already, um, just in a quick, rapid succession. Uh, first of all, let's start with interpretation of the book of Genesis. You've mentioned that it is the safest way to interpret Genesis. It is the most natural way to interpret Genesis as not being um, a literal uh, interpretation. 
So with that being, would you say, would you say that that's the, the case? Would you agree with the that? Most, the most natural reading? No, absolutely not. I think that the most natural reading is the, honestly, the young earth creationist model. I think that's why you ended up with people believing in a flat earth. That's why you ended up with people believing in a heliocentric and a geocentric model, because that's the way it was written, the culture it was written in. And I think that is the most natural reading. And so we have to be careful, though, not to apply, not to look back and say, oh, well, since our modern scientific understanding is that there's a round earth and that we're in a heliocentric model, that that's what the Bible was intending to say, because the Bible wasn't trying to talk about science. So no, absolutely not. The most natural reading is not the reading that I'm presenting, because that's not necessarily the way that it was written and thought of by the original audience. I think they thought of a lot of the details in the way, um, and they didn't view truth quite in the same way that we do in relative in relation to facts. But no, I wouldn't say that it's the most natural reading by any means. Okay, so you would say, though, that the original audience didn't didn't and and see if i'm understanding this correctly didn't intend to it, it wasn't the intention for them to interpret it necessarily the way that you're perceiving but that's because their culture was very different and that they were more concerned about the functional ontology and less concerned about material origins would you say that that's correct yeah i think that's absolutely a big piece of it absolutely G very good just so we got that part clear on your interpretation of the book of genesis we do understand that there is a natural reading of it then that would lead us to believe that it is historical. Some of those aspects are, as you pointed out before, the genealogies, and that is one aspect, and I've heard that interpretation of the genealogies before. Um, but also some of the more chronological markers, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and that was tied to Noah, and those genealogies given from the time of Noah down to Abraham, and the genealogies given from Abraham, those have been very meticulously kept. So... Um, what, how would you interpret some of these more historical aspects in the book of Genesis if the intention of Genesis 1 through 11 and its ties to the rest of the book of Genesis was, in, was not in initially meant to be historical? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, one of the things that we need to recognize is that genealogies aren't meant to establish history. Genealogies are meant to establish identity. That's why when you look at the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Matthew, you see there's multiple people that are skipped, and it says, this person begat this person, even though that's his great-great-grandson. So Matthew intentionally chose to skip names in Jesus' genealogy to keep this pattern of 77777 in order to keep make a statement about identity. And that's what genealogies really did in their culture was establish identity. They didn't care about establishing history. And I think that's also why you see variations in the ages of the patriarchs between the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and the um, Sumerian Pentateuch. Would you agree then that uh, that sense of identity was tied to a physical connection to an ancestor? Yeah, absolutely. Eber, um, I think the grandson, grandson or great grandson of Noah, is the is the person that the entire Hebrew people are named after. Precisely. So you would say though that the literal and historical connection to these people is still very relevant to the genealogical uh, presumption. Yeah, uh, the I think that these that the people that are stated were probably real people. But my point is that the ages that are assigned to them are are symbolic and given for honor to these people and not necessarily meant to be taken as literal ages and therefore reconstructing a history based off those ages is an inappropriate use of those numbers. Okay, that's a totally fair point. Would you say, though, that these genealogies, by some metric, do still connect... Uh, the events that transpired in each of their lives historically 
by, by the narrative historically, I should say, to the events that happened to Abraham. To reword the question, make sure I understand it. Since Abraham's life and stories are meant to be historic, and the stories that are presented before there are linked by people, should we assume that those things actually did happen at least at some level? Is that accurate? Correct. Yes. Okay, yeah. So um, I think maybe the flood's the easiest place to talk about it. I think that if we see that there's cultures everywhere that have flood stories, clearly there's something in the shared human conscience that says, ah, big scary water's bad, and that's not just going to come up out of nowhere. So I'm certain that there was some catastrophic flood, um, and that is probably referencing a real event. Now, the way it's talked about may be more of a um, figurative or artistic rendering of what actually happened, but I think it does have its basis in truth. I think that all of it has a basis in truth, but the historicity that we put forth today and the way that we interpret historicity today is not the same way that it was originally written down or intended to be understood. All right. Uh, let's move past that for just a minute and focus on theistic evolution for just a moment. Uh, how does, because I must, I, I believe you're presenting a view of theistic evolution. Is, am, am I fair in, in taking that assessment? Uh, there's so many different terms for it. Um, it's It at least falls somewhere nearby. Okay. So you believe that God created the world, and you're not necessarily saying that it was through evolution, but it was not necessarily through the literal creation in s seven days. Oh, no, I'll go ahead and present that everything occurred by macroevolutionary processes, just the way that it's presented in science, and that God is the person who wrote down those, evolu those biological and physical laws that allowed for that to occur, just okay. for the sake of argument here. Okay, that works for me. Uh, fine. If that's the case, then how does that view of, we'll call it theistic evolution, account for a biblical narrative uh, that seems to assert a perfect creation uh, that had a fall into sin, and that's in the impact of that on the natural world? Uh, sure. First, I think that it doesn't ever say that there was a, cre a perfect creation. It says it was a good creation. Second, we know that whenever Eve was cursed, it said that your pain will be multiplied, not that you will be given pain. So there was already pain. There was already a good creation. And good doesn't necessarily mean perfect. Whenever we look at the book of Psalms, we see God praising the predatory behaviors of certain lion of like lions and other animals as being good and amazing and like that's glorified so there's a certain point where we have to realize that our version of perfect may not be exactly what god was saying and i think perfect is more about referring to the relation that god had with man now how does evolution tie into this um i read one theory recently which i haven't decided exactly where i fall in it but i thought it was really interesting that even from a purely naturalistic there is no god evolutionary perspective we have to recognize and i don't agree with that type of perspective obviously but even from that most extreme perspective we recognize that humans are able to understand right and wrong in the way that other animals can't like if you tell your dog lila no and she like kind of cowers away from you and says oh i'm sorry like your dog doesn't know right versus wrong your dog knows punishment versus reward and that's a very different system than right and wrong so whenever the bible talks about hey Right now, you're relying on me to know what's good and bad. And then humans come in and develop, well, no, we're going to come up with our own way of determining what's good and what's evil. And that's what really the fall is, is man saying, like, God looks at the earth, and it says God looked at the earth and he saw that it was good. And then it says Eve looked at the tree and she saw that it was good and it was desirable. That is the moment where man, as a species, has suddenly decided – I'm going to determine for myself what's right and wrong, and that's whenever morality occurred. Even evolutionarily, we know morality came up somewhere, and so at that point, once man has morality, 
and this is what we would consider true for even today, until you have a sense of morality and a personal understanding of morality, you're not going to be able to be held accountable. Uh, where there is no law, there is also no sin. I, I don't remember. Where there's no law, there's no condemnation. Something along right. those lines is said in Romans, According right? Romans, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answers you, but I don't want to keep taking up your time. Totally fine. That does lead to an interesting question, though, because when we assume that this evolutionary process occurred and that there was a point at which morality developed, uh, how do we determine that mankind, or how can we determine that mankind was truly made in the image of God if nothing uniquely transpired that God demonstrated and said, this is my image? Yeah, so image of God in itself um, doesn't quite refer to One things— minute. Um, uh, most directly in that way. So image of God is the same language used to talk about um, idols being made the image of other gods. So man is God's idol and it's placed in the center of the garden, which is God's temple, right? And so man being made the image of God, if you look, the next thing that happens is God gives man a job and it tells him, and it, he tells man to subdue things. In the first several days, you see God naming things part of the creation. And then after that, he creates things without naming them and says, man, I'm putting you here and making you in my image. And then man goes and names things. So man is representing God to creation so the entire thing is excuse me man is the one that represents god to creation and that's what it means to be made in the image of god not necessarily understand. a physical image of understand one last question does theistic evolution then imply that death and suffering were part of god's original creation and how does that align with the biblical narrative of a quote very good creation oh so is death and suffering part of the original creation um that is that is a tough question. I think that there's no way to get around the fact that the process of evolution Time. over millions of years obviously does require there to be death and suffering. Like we have ideas of animals eating each other. We have fossilized records from a super long time ago of a of a women and children that are butchered in holes from prehistoric weapons and it appears to that they were assaulted both physically and sexually. Like how can we call that good? Um and it does. You're right. It does raise a real question. And anybody who believes in theistic evolution and is, just dismisses this idea isn't thinking critically enough. And this is a very real problem that we need to be willing to address and we shouldn't shy away from. My personal view, and I'm still wrestling with the idea, um, so don't don't hear me saying that I have it all figured out by any means, is that when God's talking about things being good, God, in the Hebrew text, we see this idea of a good eye versus a bad eye. I don't remember the exact Hebrew words for it, but do you see the world through a good eye or do you see the world through a bad eye? When God saw the world, he saw that it was corrupt and filled with violence, and he saw Noah, and he saw Noah was good. But after the flood, Noah made a sacrifice, and the same reason that God said he destroyed the world was because they are all flesh, so their days will be numbered 120. Afterwards, once Noah makes his sacrifice, he says, because they are flesh, I will, or because their hearts are evil from birth, I will never destroy the world again. So we see that God is trying to say through this story, hey, the world is violent and corrupt, but you need to look at the world a different way. Jesus reflects the same idea later on. Do you have a good eye or do you have a bad eye? So is the world good? I think it depends on how you look at it. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much. Uh, again, we went over time, but the last question by Jordan was within his time, and Jace's answer was the thing that went over. So again, we won't be deducting time for that. It's perfectly fine for an answer to continue past uh, past the end of time. Uh, in any case, we are now ready for the closing arguments. Uh, Jordan, you will be going first this time. So just for the audience, the order is flipped. 
And now Jordan will be going first for his closing to present the affirmative perspective that Genesis 1 through 11 are a little literal historical sequence of events. Jordan, whenever you're ready, I will start your time when you start speaking. And Jace, please uh, remember to mute your mic. Best of luck, Jordan. Right. In addressing the arguments presented by my opponent, it's crucial to critically evaluate the interpretations and assumptions that underline their stance. First, the suggestion that Genesis must be read as mythopoetic or allegorical primarily, though not exclusively, due to its supposed incompatibility with modern scientific understanding requires scrutiny. This viewpoint risks reducing the rich narrative of Genesis, full of historical markers and theological depth, to mere symbolic tales detached from reality. Such a reading not only distorts the author's intent, but also weakens the foundational role of Genesis in a biblical theology. Moreover, the attempt to reconcile Genesis with theistic evolution, while well-intentioned, often leads to an interpretive stretch that compromises the text's integrity. For instance, interpreting the days of creation as allegorical representations of functional attributes rather than literal days imposes an external framework onto the text, potentially obscuring its original message. This approach also raises theological questions such as the nature of sin and death in a pre-fall world that are not adequately addressed within the theistic evolutionary perspective. Furthermore, my opponent reliance on a methodological naturalistic interpretation of scientific data while dismissing the possibility of supernatural intervention reflects a philosophical bias rather than an objective assessment of the evidence. The assumption that natural explanations are inherently superior to supernatural ones not only narrows the scope of scientific inquiry, but also contradicts the theistic worldview presented in Genesis, where divine action is central to the creation narrative. While my opponent raises important points for consideration, their arguments often rest on, an, on interpretive assumptions that do not fully account for the historical and theological richness of Genesis. It is essential to approach this text not only with specific curiosity, sorry, not only with scientific curiosity, but also with hermeneutical sensitivity, respecting its historical context and theological significance. My opponent has brought a vast amount of empirical evidence, hermeneutics, and theological arguments, all of which have been developed, well considered, and well articulated. My argument is not to view not not that this view is heretical, but rather that it may be problematic. I'm not trying to argue that science is evil or wrong, but that perhaps our very modern and material ontology has left left us with a view of science that is incomplete. There is much that modern naturalism has allowed us to understand, but there is much it has not adequately explained, and as we have determined, much it cannot. The reality of an older world would not shake my faith. However, I think it is a fair assessment that we should exercise caution before asserting that our incomplete methodology and interpretation of data, based on a modern philosophy of science, takes precedence over the apparent intended historical interpretation of the divinely inspired word of God. The significance of upholding a historical interpretation of Genesis cannot be overstated. This approach is not merely about adhering to a traditional view but about recognizing the profound impact of Genesis on the entire biblical narrative and, by extension, on foundational Christian doctrines. A historical reading of Genesis provides the necessary context for understanding the nature of humanity, the reality of sin, and the necessity of salvation, themes central to Christian faith. When we consider Genesis as an historical account, we see a direct link between the events of creation, the fall, and the redemptive work of Christ. This link is vital for understanding the narrative arc of Scripture, from creation to new creation. If the events of Genesis are relegated to allegory or myth, this not only disrupts the continuity of the biblical narrative, but also raises serious theological questions. For instance, if the fall is not an historical event, 
What does this imply about the nature of sin and the need for redemption? Furthermore, the historical view of Genesis affirms the reliability and authority of Scripture. It demonstrates that the Bible is not just a collection of moral teachings or mythological stories, but a coherent narrative that reveals God's interaction with the world and his plan for humanity. This view fosters a deep trust in the Bible as a reliable source of truth, both theologically and historically. In essence, maintaining a historical reading of Genesis is about preserving the theological coherence and continuity of the biblical narrative. It allows us to fully appreciate the depth and breadth of the scriptural revelation, which speaks not only of a God who creates, but also of a God who redeems, sustains, and promises a future restoration. I yield my time. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jordan. Uh, Jace, now it's your turn. Please present your uh, your closing arguments, and I will start your time as soon as you begin speaking. Jordan, remember to mute your mic. Good luck. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered universe from the chaotic waters. He creates domains of light and darkness, and then he separates the waters above, the rockia, from the waters below. He then separates the dry land, the arets, from the waters. Then God creates functionaries for the functions. He creates the sun and moon to rule the light and dark. He creates birds and fish to rule the vault of the waters. He creates livestock and creeping things and beasts to rule the land. And then he creates man, his crowning achievement, to rule it all. But man isn't satisfied with letting God decide what is good and what is evil, so man rebels against God and chooses for himself. Thus we have the war between the seed of man and the seed of the snake. In the next generation, the evil is grown, surpassing rebellion and becoming a criminal act. And then Cain builds a city. And in the seventh generation, we see that evil has reached its pinnacle with Lamech. Evil has become a civilization. And then we see the Nephilim partaking in illicit sex with the daughters of man. Evil has become a cosmic level force. But just as evil increases, so does good. Another Lamech was born in the line of Seth, living 777 years in direct opposition to the Lamech of the line of Cain. God is deeply grieved for the pervasive violence and injustice on the land, so he collapses the waters above with the waters below. Cosmic destruction. But God saves one man and his family, the son of Lamech, the good, Noah. God calls Noah to build a tebah, an Egyptian word used to describe a sarcophagus or a vessel for an idol. You see, God is decreating and recreating. He's represented in the new temple by a new Adam. And what does the new Adam do once God brings order to the chaotic waters? Well, he plants a garden. And then, of course, he rebels against God and sees and takes the fruit, and he becomes drunk. And then Ham violates his father, a criminal act for, of the next generation, which brings conflict between brothers. In the generations which follow, Ham's descendants build the civilizations of evil, which will plague the civilizations of good that are God's chosen people. And we're left at the end of the primeval history with the seed of the snake ruling the world through Egypt and Babylon. And out of this cosmic rebellion, God will call yet another new Adam, Abraham. The story of Genesis 1-11 through is stunningly beautiful. It teaches us the entire narrative of the Bible and of God's mission by subverting the culture in which it's given. But God doesn't give this to his people in the wilderness so that they can have a history book. That's not what was important to their culture. No. God gives them this masterpiece to reframe their worldview and show them the identity of both God and of man. While all the other nations worship and glorify these warrior god kings, these men of renown, God says, no, you are my image. You represent me. That means that when you work, you work through word, not through the sword. That means the way that you look and act and worship will be different than the world around you. It's beautiful, and it's absolutely true, every bit of it. But what's the truth here? Is the truth that the world is a flat disk underneath a solid rocky sky dome? Or is the truth that the cosmos is the temple of God? 
Is the truth that the waters above collapse to the waters below to decreate the cosmos? Or is the truth that, even through the chaos, God saves a remnant of his people? Is the truth that there were giants who were in the land both before and after the flood? Or is the truth that we're called to revere something different than what the world reveres? When we try to make the story of Genesis 1-11 through 11 about science and history, we've already missed the point. Whatever you might believe about the physical origins of the universe, Genesis 1-11 through 11 was not given to tell that story. At the most, we can draw hints from these passages about cosmic origins. But if we want to go down that route, then we have to be totally honest with ourselves and with others. Either the Bible reveals scientific fact and history, or it doesn't. Do you believe in a geocentric model of the universe? Do you believe that there's a solid dome overhead in which the sun, the moon, and the stars move, and which holds back the cosmic ocean from collapsing on us? Do you believe that the flood destroyed all life, yet the Nephilim were on the earth before and after those days? If you don't believe these things, then how can you be sure? How can you be absolutely positive that you've interpreted the scriptures correctly? Guys, this is hard stuff. It's incredibly unsettling to come to the realization that the things that you were taught growing up aren't quite right. It's ten times worse when those things are matters of scriptural interpretation. But God tells us in Psalms 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the rakia declares his handiwork. In Romans 1, we're told that even the ungodly and the righteous, unrighteous can see God in his creation. If we believe that to be true, then we should expect to see God's truth reflected in creation. And what's more, we should expect to see that even the unbelievers can see it. So when all secular biologists, all secular geologists, and the vast majority of our Christian brothers and sisters have, who have dedicated to their lives to the study of creation tell you that the Earth is ancient, that, the, that evolution is real, and that there was no global flood, why are we so quick to abandon the community that God has called us into? When even the Christian scholars dedicated to this section of the Bible tell us that it's a literary polemic and not history, why do we dismiss them? Take a Don't devote yourself to endless myths and genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying of or the things about which they make confident assertions. 1 Timothy 1, 4-7. Honestly, I don't care where you end up on the science and the history of Genesis 1-11, through because that isn't, nor has it ever been, what this scripture is about. But we need to quit making these confident assertions about which things which we don't understand. More than 20% of young people who have left the church cite the disagreements between church and science as their number one reason for apostasy. So they're leaving not because of what God says, but because of what we say God says. We are driving people away from the church, and we are placing a stumbling block in the road to faith when we dig in our heels on these topics. One of the main lessons of the primeval history is that we absolutely have to be careful to not repeat the sins of our ancestors. So, have we learned the lesson of the text? Or will we be another generation of the church fighting a losing battle against Galileo? And I All right. Time. Excellent, excellent job to both of you. That was uh, incredible work, and I can tell a ton of work went into this. Well, to the audience, congratulations, and thank you very much if you listened this far. Uh, we made it. And uh, if you're anything like me, I think you learned a lot, because I definitely did listening to these two guys. They're two very smart guys who obviously really dug into this material and brought a lot for us today. Uh, we're going to have a discussion section after this. I imagine will be uploaded as a separate podcast. So please tune into that as well. We're going to talk about how everything went. We're going to get the debaters' perspectives on 
everything that was said, and uh, hopefully we'll have a good talk then.